Uh, I'm going to conclude uh, this series. Uh, this is part three. Next week, I'm going to conclude with part four. The following week, I'm going to talk to you about uh, the transition. And uh, I'm just going to title that series. It's just going to be a one, one-time message, The Transition. And uh, it'll explain a little bit more uh, in detail about what's happening between uh, Doug and myself in this coming September. Uh, several weeks ago, I, I shared, I asked a question. I said, have you ever heard of the adversity principle? Uh, some of you weren't here then. Uh, some of you perhaps need uh, to hear it again a second time. And so please forgive me if I'm, I'm repeating myself with an illustration. But the adversity principle is something that biologists and botanists uh, know well about. Uh, it has to do with the, 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 the plant and the animal uh, kingdoms, if you will. Uh, they, they know that an easy life, a life without conflict, a life without struggle, is not a good thing uh, for any species. And a couple of examples that I gave was, think about the animals in the zoo. You know, they're, they're not really uh, all that uh, fit or healthy, they're kind of, you know, flabby and, and whatever, because, because they have all of their needs met for them. Uh, they have water and food brought to them every day. They have a, a zookeeper who cares for all of their needs, you know. Uh, the other example I gave was that of the uh, trees that are growing in the rainforest. Uh, because water is so plentiful there, the, the trees that grow there don't have to dig their roots down very deeply, so they're not really anchored very well to the ground. And so even if there's a minor windstorm, some of them, some of them topple over you know, as a result of that. But, but in contrast, in contrast to that, uh, I gave the example of the acacia tree. The, the acacia tree grows in the most hostile and difficult and harsh environments in the world. And in order for it to survive, it has to send its roots down as much as 75 feet down into the ground before it can find water. And when, and when those roots are, are, are solidly anchored into the ground, I mean, winds of 150 miles and more an hour cannot blow down those trees. And so what we see is that the, the very environment, the hostility of, of that kind of environment actually adds strength and adds stability to that species of, of tree as comparison to the trees in the tropical forest. So here's my point. Don't be surprised when we encounter trials and adversity and difficulties. What God is after is, is to build in us an unbreakable and an undefeatable experience. And that God gives us grace for. And his grace is sufficient. And we're going to look at that in its context this morning. But one of the aspects of grace is that, is that grace not only saves us, for we're saved by grace through faith, but, but grace is something that we need continually throughout our walk with Christ. Uh, grace is, is, an, is, is the power, the energy of the Spirit of God to enable us to, to not only endure, but to thrive, to grow in the most adverse of circumstances. And so we're going to look at the sufficiency of grace in the life of the Apostle Paul and some of the difficulties or the afflictions or, or, or the sufferings that Paul experienced. And as a result of that, he came to, he came to the to revelation that, that God's grace is absolutely sufficient for us. Let me share with you. Uh, the drink of choice, you know, if you're living in England, 
uh, is probably tea, right? Uh, the drink of choice in places like China uh, or even India is, again, it's probably tea, right? But the choice of drink in America, if you're Doug Jansen, it's Dr. Pepper, you know? Somebody please explain to Doug that Dr. Pepper doesn't mean that it's a healthy drink, you know? It's not medicine for you. In fact, it'll kill you, you know? Too much sugar, you know? But, 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 but seriously, the, the choice of drink in America is, I'll say it the way I learned it, coffee, you know? It's coffee, yeah. I mean, we, we love our coffee, you know? And if you are a coffee aficionado, uh, if you are a coffee snob, but by the way, if, if you want to do a Google search, and some of you have your phone, you can take it out right now. Do a Google search on coffee snob. You will get 165 million, no, I'm sorry, 1.6, yeah, 1.65 million hits on coffee snobs. Because there's lots of us in the world who are coffee snobs and uh, coffee aficionados. Uh, interestingly, as long as I know Doug, uh, I've never seen him drink a cup of coffee. In fact, I texted Kelly the other day. I said, does, does, Kel, does, does Doug drink coffee, or has he ever tasted coffee? And she says, yes, he tasted coffee, but he, he hates the taste, but he loves the aroma. I said, well, that's, that's interesting. That might work for my message today. So, so I, I, my, in contrast, my son, Will, my son, Will, is a coffee snob, you know? Uh, we, we, had, we had bought, you know, the, the, the pods for the, the Keurig, right? Uh, to make him happy when he was staying with us and his family for the last, you know, couple of weeks before they moved on to Chicago, right? I bought these, you know, expensive little, but it, they weren't good enough for him. He had to go out and buy his own because he's a, he's a coffee snob, you know? Uh, when, uh, when they were staying with us, uh, uh, I guess Will thought it was a really great idea uh, to have the kids... Uh, ask uh, Grandma and Papa some questions about our lives, about wh what it was like when we were young, growing up in Brooklyn, uh, to give the kids kind of some more information because they've been living in Virginia and we don't see them that often. Uh, so, you know, one of the stories that I told my daughter-in-law, uh, Carrie, wasn't too happy with. Uh, I, said, I said, my mother rose, when I was, when I was a, a, a kid and a teenager, uh, all the way up till the day I got married, uh, she she made me uh, a drink uh, of of half espresso. It was half black coffee, Italian coffee, and half milk. We called it latte cafe. It was a latte, right? And, but she brought it to my bedroom, and she laid it on my table every morning as I woke up. And I, I could see my my little grandson uh, Liam's eyes begin to get like sauces, like this here thinking that maybe that's something that could happen for me. And just carry, just, she just shot it down. It was real quick. You know, we ain't going to have that. Don't expect that here, right? Uh, but that coffee, and the, and the reason why I even bring up this, this issue of coffee is because, because those who are coffee snobs, they will tell you that the best coffee in the world is coffee that's made in a French press. Now, I don't know, does anybody have a French press here? Oh, there's, there's a few of you. They swear, so, so you guys probably are coffee snobs, right? But, but they swear that the best coffee is made in a coffee press, and here's how, here's how it works. The, 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 the beans are ground coarsely, and they're put into the, the French press, and then you pour boiling hot water over a, 
over the, the beans, right? And uh, you let it sit for a, a few minutes. And uh, then, then you, you put the top on, which is the press part. And you press through the pressure of bringing those beans all the way down to the ground. What, what happens is it, it emits, a, they say, an incredible aroma. The, the oils and the aroma and the essence of the, of the coffee bean comes out in, the, in its greatest form in that particular way. And, and, and my point is that under pressure, so many good things happen in this life. I mean, you know, uh, Leah, don't go away. Just show us that diamond ring one more time. See that diamond ring? <laughs> Baby, that was, one, that was once a piece of coal. Did you know that? That was once a piece of coal that you're wearing on your finger. All you ladies with diamond rings on, it, it came out of intense pressure. You know, th- think about grapes. Grapes make wine, right? Uh, the olive makes olive oil. Where would we be without olive oil in this world? It would be an unhappy place, right? And where would we be without the pressure that brings and produces maturity in our life? You see, this is where the aroma of Christ is greatestly expressed and diffused in the life of a believer. This is what the apostle Paul was talking about in his letter to the Corinthians. He said, we were pressed above measure, beyond our ability to endure. We had this sentence of death in ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in the living God who is able to raise the dead. And out of that experience, Paul Paul then wrote in the second chapter that we are those who diffuse the fragrance and the aroma of Christ everywhere we go. How do we do that? That aroma only comes out of the pressure of affliction and the trials and the difficulties and the persecutions that we endure by being members of the body of Christ. There's a a vintage uh, Marine Corps recruiting poster that I've seen, uh, and it's got a picture of a Marine who's in the midst of a of a strenuous workout, right? And I wanted to, wanted to share the copy with you, what it says on the poster. And this is what it says. It says, pain is weakness leaving the body. The question isn't how much more you can take, but how much more you can give. Just when you're ready to quit, your mind says, push harder. You listen, sensing an inner strength that wasn't there before, and suddenly you discover you no longer feel the pain. Now you are one of us, 1-800-MARINES. Now, that was their uh, means of recruiting Marines, you know, uh, that you can get beyond the point of, of feeling pain. But I, I want to kind of tweak that because I think that we need posters to recruit for Jesus, okay? And, and here's what I, I would say in the copy. I would say, trials and adversity, though painful, serve to strengthen our faith. Indeed, pain is weakness leaving the body. And just when you think that you've got nothing left, God comes and gives grace to the humble. And you sense an inner strength that wasn't there before. And now you're one of us, 1-800-Christians. I think this is what Paul meant when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have learned to be content in whatever situation I find myself in, whether it's 
not having enough or whether it's having more than enough. I have learned the secret of contentment. I can do all things. But the point is, is that there is a grace that enables us and a grace that can strengthen us to not just endure, but to grow like the, like the acacia tree in the midst of hostile and, and difficult circumstances and environments. And, and, and in that process, diffuse the fragrance of Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to talk to you about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Uh, it's controversial in some places for me. I don't think it's controversial at all. Uh, we want to take a look at it in its context and, and, and try to get a handle on Paul's experience because I think Paul went through this experience so that you and I and everyone who's ever read Paul's story can be strengthened and benefited by what he's learned about the grace of God, that the grace of God truly is sufficient for us in every circumstance. So let me just give you a little bit of the background, okay? Uh, Paul is, is embarrassed. Paul is, Paul is distressed over the fact that he's got to authenticate his apostolic ministry before the Corinthians, which is mind-boggling since he is the apostle who founded the church in the first place. And now they're questioning his, his apostolic authority, and they're, they're bringing you know, criticisms that are so unfair uh, about Paul, about his appearance, about his speech, and, and on and on. You know? and, so, and so in the 11th chapter, there, 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 there is, Paul is making reference to Satan who masquerades himself as an angel of light and, and just reminds them about the deceptive power of the enemy and that his ministers, his minions also can masquerade as ministers of righteousness. And so what Paul is, 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 is driving at is, listen, anybody could make up any kind of a story for the purpose of exalting themselves telling you that, that they have had visions of angels and celestial beings. In fact, even to this day, men are doing the same thing, trying to make themselves to be, to be something when they're nothing by devising plans or, or dreams or, or visions that kind of promote them as being a lead and being special. And so, and so Paul is, is reluctantly going to bring up a vision that he had 14 years before. Now, imagine, he had this vision, but he didn't tell anybody about it for, for 14 years. But now he is, he's, he's being compelled to bring this up, and he's embarrassed about it. He, he would rather not talk about himself. He would rather talk about Christ. But the false apostles and the false prophets, they love to talk about themselves, where Paul's interest is to promote Jesus and to make much of Jesus their interest is to make much of themselves. And so that's the context in which we're looking at. And so Paul says, I know a man, and he speaks in the third person. He doesn't even refer to him as himself. He says, I know a man, whether he's in the body or out of the body, 14 years ago, was caught up into the paradise of God, caught up into heaven. And, and, and such a man, whether he was in the body or out of the body, I can't tell. What Paul was saying was, look, this experience was so overwhelming to him that he could not specifically say that it was an out-of-body experience or it was something that God literally brought him to heaven. But, but, but really, what Paul is about to say is, I'm not going to boast about that man. 
I'm not going to brag about that because that is absolutely foolish for me to do so. It's a waste of time. But I want to tell you who I am going to brag about. I'm going to tell you about me, but I'm going to tell you about me in terms of my weakness, in terms of what it was like for me to suffer and to ask God to remove this thing from me, but he didn't do it. So we pick up then in verse 7. And so Paul says, there's a purpose behind this thorn. Verse 7, he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So when God finally did give Paul the answer, after Paul prayed through three times, and, and, and how many of you just kind of think about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, not once, not twice, but three times and until, until Jesus was satisfied with what the will of God was for him. And so Paul is now satisfied with what the will of God was for him. And he comes away with this understanding now that my grace is sufficient for you, for my power, my strength, is made perfect in weakness. Now here's the conclusion of what Paul says. The word therefore, remember the word therefore, Think of columns of numbers. You draw a line at the bottom of those columns. That's the therefore. And now here's the sum of what we've just learned. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. If I'm going to brag, Paul says, I'm going to brag about what I am weak about so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness. Weaknesses insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. And, 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 here, and here it is, this last sentence. For when I am weak, when I acknowledge my weakness, when I am aware of my weakness, I am strong. Then I am strong. Even if you're slightly familiar with, with, with the Bible, uh, you've probably seen this concept come through in, in different ways from, from the Gospels and from the Word of God, that, that there's a paradigm shift, that, that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, that God's ways are not our ways, that if God were foolish, then his foolishness would be wiser than the greatest of men's wisdom, right? Everything is kind of turned upside down. That's what a paradigm shift is. It's a different way of looking at things. And if we're going to look at things through God's perspective, what God values and what is important to God is what we, we really need to get a handle of. For, for example, for, for God, the way up is down. Who, whoever will humble themselves will be exalted, but whoever will exalt themselves will be brought low. Right? The, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Who, who, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever will voluntarily lose his life will find it. Uh, the greatest in the kingdom of God, he said, is the least of all and the servant of all. Everything in God's economy is upside down from the way in which the natural man thinks. For the natural man cannot understand the things of God. They are spiritually discerned. And so God's dichotomy, God's, God's 
perspective is totally different than our perspective. That's why Paul says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Because the power of Christ, his grace will rest upon me. Now, I know that for every single one of us that are here this morning, we want to know, God, how can I I be strong in this situation? How can I be strong when I face difficulties? How can I be strong in the midst of trials, whether it's emotional, financial, spiritual, whatever the trial is? God, how can I know a strength so that I will will become unbreakable and unbeatable? I mean, that's really what we want to discover this morning. And God has grace for us, and his grace will always be sufficient for us. In fact, what we discover is that these are opportunities, these difficulties are opportunities for the grace of God to be magnified, but also for Jesus to be displayed for the great Savior that he is. I think one of the things that made Jesus so attractive to, to sinners like us is, well, aside from his love and compassion, which attracted people. And, and I, think, I think probably that was the first thing that attracted me to Jesus. But, but, but beyond that was his humility. He, he, here's the creator of the universe who spoke the universe into existence, who, 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 who is washing stinky feet, who is robed in the garments of a slave, who's come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I, I think the humility of Jesus is so attractive. It's what draws us to him. Even when we fall and when we fail and when we feel like we've blown it, it's his humility as the man Christ Jesus that, that attracts us to him and makes us run to him instead of running away from him. And the, the converse is, is true. Pride is so unattractive. You know, I, I, I see this all the time. My wife and I, we watch the Food Network. We, we watch the show Chopped. And I know some of you, you know, have seen that show. I, I think the, the thing that turns me off more about chefs. Now, 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 now chefs, have, they have this creative edge, you know, and, and, and they're usually, you know, kind of weird, you know, with the way they dress and they want to express themselves. But that don't bother me. I don't care how, how a person looks. It's, it's the first few minutes of the show when they talk about how superior they are, you know, and it's those chefs that say, you know, they're going to crush the competition, they're going to destroy them, their, their expertise, their, their, their experience is far superior than anything that they're going to face, you know, that just turns me off so much, and I, I know, listen, it turns God off as well, because the Bible says that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In fact, the Bible says that God gives more grace. And if you're here this morning and you are in need of grace, or you're here this morning and, and, and you, 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 maybe you've been attracted this morning because you've seen the humility in somebody who invited you to church, or, 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 or maybe you've seen the love and the compassion that, that someone has, has talked to you about Jesus, and that's why you're here this morning. Can I just suggest to you that that if you will come to know him, you will never, never, never regret that. His love is unconditional and his love endures forever. And he wants you to know that and experience that. But now this is what I want you to know. 
this is what God was, the purpose was behind Paul's thorn. It was, verse 7 says, to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing great revelations that was given to me, a thorn in my flesh. Now, I don't know if anybody ever did this, but I used to do this when I was a kid. Maybe I wasn't so bright, I don't know, but you know, you judge, you know. But, but I used to walk around the house with a mirror. And sometimes I would walk around the house with the mirror looking backwards as I walked. You know, you kind of bump into stuff, and, and that was kind of the fun of it, you know. Or, or I would hold the mirror in such a way. Now, come on, anybody ever do this? I would, I would, I would hold the mirror. I guess I'm the only weird one here. I would hold the mirror in such a way that I could not see in front of me. I could only see above me. You know, I could see the ceiling, I could see the, the light fixtures, I could see the, 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 the molding, the doorways, and I would walk from room to room, cr- crashing into stuff. I tried to perfect my ability to, to remember where stuff was so that I wouldn't cr- crush, you know, walk into it, right? And I think my mother misunderstood my playful intentions. I think my mother thought that I was enamored with my good looks, you know, like kind of like narcissist. And I think my mother meant well when she told me, and I'll never forget what she told me. She said, she said, son, if you keep staring at yourself in the mirror, pretty soon you'll see the devil. I said, mom, I'm just a kid. You know, you're scaring me. But I understood what she meant. She meant, she, she perceived, if, if I thought that I was being enamored with myself, that's exactly what happened to Lucifer. He was enamored with himself. He was in love with his own beauty, with his own wisdom, with his own giftings. And as a result of that iniquity, sin was found in him. And I think that's why that, why that pride is so repulsive. And that's why God will do anything to, to, to deliver us from becoming elite or thinking of ourselves more highly than we should or, or becoming, becoming conceited. And that's what Paul is saying is that, is, that, is that God considered my holiness to be more important than my comfort. And so to me was given this thorn in the flesh. I got to tell you something. That thorn in the flesh, you know, what, what, let me just... Go to the left here for a minute. Uh, that thorn in the flesh, while it was painful, you know, for, for generations and generations, uh, theologians and, and scholars have all had their opinions as, as to what Paul's thorn in the flesh is. Personally, I think it's a mistake to try to identify what the thorn was. You see, because I, I believe that the reason why it was so nonspecific was because it is applicable to all of us in this room this morning, because all of us go through some area of difficulty, some area that causes us some pain, whether it's emotional or physical or, or mental or spiritual, financial, whatever it might happen to be. And I believe that God purposely did not give the specific nature of this thorn. But, but, but you know, commentators, they've come up with all kinds of things. That some suggest that it was that it was malaria. Some suggest that it was uh, an eye infection, uh, some sort of uh, uh, 
a uh, disease of, of, of the eyes. Uh, others suggested it was gout, uh, kidney stones. I mean, I'm telling you, the, the list goes on and on and on. And, I, and, and it doesn't even pay for me to share with you what the possibilities were because, because there's no way that we can conclusively identify what it was, except that it was painful for Paul. Whether it was a kidney stone or whether it was conjunctivitis, I, I, I don't know. But one thing is clear. From the enemy's perspective, Satan's messenger was to hurt Paul. It was to injure Paul. But the adversary, think about it, would love for nothing more than for Paul to be proud, to be arrogant, to think of himself more highly than he should, to be puffed up because that's his nature. And remember that Satan and God work at dissimilar purposes. Think about the cross. Satan wanted to crucify Jesus. He wanted to kill Jesus, destroy Jesus. But God the Father also designed the cross for a different purpose altogether, and that was to save many lives. Think about Satan and his desire to provoke Job, to want to blaspheme and curse God. But God wanted Job's experience to come out to be made stronger in his faith toward God. So when suffering hits, what does Paul do? The first thing that Paul does is he prays for deliverance. And when we go through suffering, the first thing that we ought to do is to likewise pray for deliverance, that we seek God. Now, when it comes to satanic attacks, I say this, that Jesus is one of the greatest examples of what do you do when you come under satanic attack, when Jesus and his disciples were on the Sea of Galilee and they found themselves in a great storm and it looked like that boat was going to capsize and go down. What did Jesus do? He stood up and he rebuked the wind and the sea and it did obey him and then was a calm. Now, let me say this. If that storm was from his heavenly father, Jesus would have never rebuked it. He would have submitted to the wind and the waves and, and just trusted in his heavenly father that his heavenly father knew what he was doing. But he understood that this thing was not of God. This, this thing that was meant to destroy him and bring the disciples in peril was not of God and therefore he rebuked it. But, but there was a storm that Jesus did submit himself to that was orchestrated by Satan, inspired by Satan. In fact, the Bible says that Satan filled the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. He actually entered into Judas and he, he betrayed the Lord. We, we know that the scripture says that it, it was with wicked hands that the Son of God was crucified. But on the other perspective, it was according to the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God before the foundation of the world. God was working his purpose from a completely different reason to bring about the salvation of much lives. And so what we need to understand is that when Paul prayed through and he got that message that God will give you grace and your grace will be sufficient for you, then Paul submitted himself to God. Last week, when we looked at the thief at the cross who, who came to salvation. We said he came to salvation when Jesus was at his absolute weakest. You see, the dichotomy of, 
of the, the weak, I, in my weakness, then we will know the strength of God. Think about the weakness of God. And the weakness of God that was displayed where? At the cross. The Bible says that Jesus was crucified in weakness. The song that we sang a little bit earlier today speaks about Jesus being crucified in weakness. Well, it was in the midst of that greatest weakness, before the three hours of darkness, before Jesus said, it is finished, before the centurion said, truly this was the Son of God, before the earthquake that this thief gave his heart and life to Christ as Lord and Savior, in the, in the midst of that greatest weakness. So in the midst of this greatest weakness, there is a dichotomy of a paradigm shift of, of coming into the strength that can only come by God enabling us to do what is otherwise impossible to do. In Paul's case, his desire was to experience freedom from this thorn in the flesh. But the experience caused Paul to look beyond himself for answers and it gave him the revelation of the sufficiency of grace. The grace of God is more than the sustaining power to be able to endure. It is the growing power to be able to become unbreakable and, and undefeatable. You know, whenever we talk about the thorn, you know, in, in our language today, we, we, would say, we would say, man, that's a pain in the neck, you know? And, and maybe it was a little bit more severe than that. I, I don't know. Have, have you ever had, I've had thorns you know, I've worked with roses, rose bushes, and, and I've planted rose bushes. And, and I've, I've gotten, you know, thorns in, in, in my finger, and, and it's unpleasant. You know, have you, have you, ever, had, have you ever had a splinter, like, uh, get caught underneath your nail? Anybody? And, and it's like the pain. I mean, it's just a tiny little, it's a quarter of an inch in, in size, but the pain radiates throughout your entire body. But, but the nature of a thorn or the nature of a splinter is that it's not life-threatening. It's not going to kill you. It's going to cause you pain, but it's, it's not going to threaten your life. And so what Paul is dealing with here is not something that was threatening his life, but something that was ca causing him a tremendous amount of pain. And so he wanted deliverance. He wanted to be set free. And God answered his prayer, but not in the way that Paul expected. See, Paul thought that the best way to get relief is for God to remove the thorn. But God was showing him that you can get relief from the thorn in another way. You can get relief from the thorn by God adding his measure of grace. And the discovery out of that, that God's grace is sufficient for you. Even in the midst of the pain, God's grace works in, in amazing ways to bring us to maturity, to bring out the aroma and the fragrance of Christ in us. Because what God is after more than anything else, Brendan prayed it this morning, is that we would be conformed to the image of God's Son. For when I am weak, then am I strong. See, P Paul wasn't rejoicing. He, he didn't have joy in the pain. He wasn't a masochist. Masochism is, is a mental disorder. He, he, was, he, he was rejoicing in the discovery that God's grace is adequate, more than adequate in every single circumstance of this life. 
Let, let, let me share a couple of quotes that I think maybe these guys say it even better than I can say it. Uh, Sam Storms, for example, says this, and you can follow up on the screen. He says, so much of what passes for contemporary Christianity speaks often of strength and triumph and victory, but not in the sense in which Paul does. For them, it means avoidance of hardship and deliverance from weakness. For Paul, it means perseverance in hardship and unyielding faith in spite of weakness. In the case of the former, we are seen as strong and smart and worthy of praise. In the case of the latter, Christ alone is center stage. I love that. A grace that displays Christ and Christ alone. Not how, not how great I am, not how strong I am, but how, how great and how strong Jesus is. This is written by John Piper. He says, the deepest need that you and I have in weakness and adversity is not quick relief, but well-grounded confidence that what is happening to us is a part of the greatest purpose in the universe, the glorification of the grace and the power of his son, the grace and power that bore him to the cross and kept him there until the work of love was done. I love that line. It was, it was a power, a strength, a grace that kept Jesus at the cross until his work of love was done. That's what God is building in our lives. You know, you know, you know what Piper is saying here? Is that, is that Jesus got grace himself to be able to face the cross. Jesus himself was strengthened in his weakness, he sweat great drops of blood. In Philip Yancey's book, Prayer Doesn't Make a Difference, he says, he asked the question, where did Jesus shed those great drops of blood? It wasn't in Pilate's Hall. It wasn't, it wasn't on the road to Calvary. He says it was in Gethsemane in the garden. It was when he was praying. It wasn't when he was being tortured or it wasn't when he was experiencing pain. He was sweating great drops of blood when he was praying. And, and, and Yancey says this, have I, had I been there and witnessed that, I would have worried about the future. He says, because if he's falling apart now and he's only praying, what is he going to do when he faces the real crisis? Why can't he be more like his three sleepy friends who are just so calm about the whole situation? Why can't he be more like them? But when Jesus faced the real crisis. He did it with courage and with strength and his sleepy friends fell apart and they fell away. And he concludes by saying this, that the real crisis we face and we must win takes place not in life but on our knees. In our submission to God. In our ability to say, God, I trust you. I trust you no matter what's happening right now. I trust you that your grace for me in this situation is enough. Seems to me that Jesus received grace in the Garden of Gethsemane. How do I know that? I know that because at one point the Heavenly Father looked at his son and sent an angel and the angel strengthened him. 
How the angel strengthened him, I don't know. What did the angel say to him, I don't know. Was it just his presence? I I don't know. But I know that he received strength. And if he received strength in the midst of his crisis, do you think that he's going to deny you strength in the midst of your crisis? If he himself is sympathetic and, 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 and if he has empathy for us, and he does, Will he not come alongside of us and undergird us and help us in the midst of our crisis? I believe that he will. I remember this in 1985. 1985, some of you weren't born then, but anyway, Terry Anderson was living in Beirut, Lebanon as a AP, Associated Press uh, Middle Eastern correspondent. He had just finished a round of tennis when he was kidnapped, thrown into the trunk of a car and taken to a secret destination. And there for the next six years and nine months, six years and almost seven years, he was held as a, as a hostage. And in that, in that period of time, he had, he had ample time to reflect and to think and to think about his life and think about the person that he didn't like being. And in that, God used that circumstance to bring him to faith in Christ. This is is what what, what he wrote. He says, I drank too much. No alcohol here. I chased women. No women here. I'm arrogant. But what better than to put me in the hands of these arrogant, uncaring young men? I've been careless about the feelings of many. These people don't give a thought about me. I've been an agnostic most of my life. My only comfort now is the word of God and prayer. Sometimes the place where we least want to be is the place where we most need to be. For it's in the painful places where God becomes real to us. It's in the crucible that we become refined. It's on the potter's wheel that we become reshaped as it seems pleasing and fit unto God. C.S. Lewis wrote this, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. As I was wrapping up this uh, message, I remembered a, poem that I had heard some years ago, and I thought that I would share that with you in conclusion. It's called The Thorn. As I stood, a beggar of God before his royal throne, and begged him for one priceless gift, which I could call my own, I took the gift from out of his hand. But as I would depart, I cried, but Lord, this is a thorn and it has pierced my heart. This is strange, a hurtful gift, which thou has given me. He said, my child, I give good gifts and gave my best to thee. I took it home and thought at first the cruel thorn hurt sore. As long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. He takes the thorn to pin aside 
the veil which hides his face. Some of the greatest experiences I've ever had, some of the greatest understandings of the person of who God is has come out of painful experiences. I think what we learn from the Apostle Paul in this experience is so practical, it's so helpful. Here's our, here's our, our takeaway this morning. The sufficiency of his grace turns weakness into strength and makes us unbeatable and unbreakable. And God has a supply of grace for you today. If you are here in need of grace, listen, you are not here by chance or by coincidence today. I believe that God has you here today for a purpose, to receive the strength that you need. He may not, he may not lift the thorn from you today, but he may add grace so that you will know the splendor and the sufficiency of his grace. Let's pray. So Father, I thank you today, Lord God, for the sufficiency of your grace and for making this just a little bit clearer to our understanding and to giving us insight into what has been known as Paul's thorn. And so Father, I pray that the understanding of this can enter into our experience and that from the experience that we likewise, who are in need of grace, every one of us are in need of more grace. And so we humble ourselves before you today, knowing that you give grace to the humble. You resist the proud. And so there's, there's, there's nothing that we want to be arrogant about or, 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 or self-absorbed about, whether it's giftings or talents or, or position. None of those things matter. But what matters is that we are being conformed to the image of your son. And so have your way, Lord God. Let your will be done. We, we pray as the son of God prayed, Father, let your will be accomplished in our lives. First and foremost, by the grace of God, that we might one day say, I am what I am by the grace of God. And his grace worked effectively in me. I just want to address before the worship team leads us into a song, if you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, you want to give you that opportunity. I said something a little while ago about his unconditional love. The Bible says, it's his words, he that will come unto me, I will in no way cast out. If you will come to him, Jesus will not cast you aside. He'll not, he'll not turn you out. No matter what you've ever done, there is nothing beyond his ability to forgive and to heal and to love and to save and to change and transform your life. And so if you will come to him, you do so by starting a conversation with him that goes something like this. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. You can just say that right where you are. Come into my heart. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I believe that you died for my sins, that God, you raised your son from the dead for me. I believe that and accept that for by grace, through faith, I am saved.